Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, you're playing with power. Don't kill me. Don't kill me, man. Don't kill me. Don't kill me, man. I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. In the simplest terms, the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case, a princess and a criminal. Does that answer your question? Hey everybody, welcome to the Back in Time podcast. I'm your host, Curtis, and with me today is TJ. How's it going, TJ? Good, good, Curtis. How are we doing over there? We're doing very well. I'm in Vancouver. Uh, it's oddly warm where I'm at, warm enough that, you know, it's pretty mild for the most part over here, so when it gets even just a little bit above mild, people start complaining. They're like, oh, I'm melting over here. Uh, I'm not that bad about complaining about it, but definitely, um, you know, it is what it is. Right. Now, uh, we're going to be discussing uh, 1982, but before we do, uh, TJ, I, you know, you come to us from the Quad M Show podcast. Why don't you tell yes. our listeners a bit about your podcast and what you guys do over there? Well, uh, you know, as we like to call it, it's the, uh, you know, somewhat live and semi-weekly show, uh, we just changed over from Mondays. We uh, drop on Fridays, and and basically it's it's myself and my uh, my co-host uh, Jason, where we spend about an hour and a half just uh, you know going over the day's events, both as far as ourselves personally and whatever's happening in you know pop culture in the nerd world. A um, couple of big things we like to do. We've got a, a feature on there called the FGS or the Fred G. Sanford Award for uh, morons in the news, and the uh, the fun with Reddit where we go through. And I, I'm sure you know yourself and the listeners are you know familiar with reddit um there's a uh, a thing in there called ask reddit and so we just find um whatever's got a really good chain that we can find that that is either going to be entertaining for us and hopefully entertaining for others you know and, and 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 do about 20 minutes on that and uh you know basically like i say it's just a just an overall comedy um pop culture podcast yeah and the great thing too is i actually listened to a couple episodes of your show and i can say that you know, with our podcast that we do, the Three Angry Nerds podcast and your podcast, there's a lot of crossover in terms of like topics covered. Like you guys review Deadpool and whatnot. So there's a lot of crossover there for our listeners. So I'm sure if they like our podcast, there's definitely quite a bit at uh, the Quad M show that they could uh, pick up and enjoy. Cool. Well, I certainly hope so. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's enough of the plugging, at least until the end of the show. But uh, again, we're going over 1982, which. Uh, 
we're, when we get to the end, we'll do our, our overall thoughts and review. But I'm going to just say that for me personally, just in terms of the pop culture history and what each year brought to the landscape of pop culture, for me personally, 1982 is just a personal favorite for a lot of the movies that came out, a lot of cult classics that came out, but ones that I think have stood the test of time. Um, and I think none more so personifies that more than The Thing, the first movie on our docket here. Now, TJ, have you seen The Thing? Have you watched that movie before? Oh, yes. John Carpenter is one of my all-time favorite directors. And honestly, I would say The Thing, if I had to rank like John Carpenter movies, I would put The Thing above Halloween. Mm. I love The Thing. The Thing was an awesome awesome epic movie and i act well i absolutely agree i mean it's actually for me john carpenter's uh best movie that he's done and i actually am a big fan of him as a director i've seen the fog and the other movies that he's done and for me i think he was firing on all cylinders with the thing and it's kind of a shame because the movie didn't do well when it came out it came out it got mixed critical reception mixed commercial reception in fact, it actually lost uh, its box office to a movie that came out around the same time, E.T. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is funny because you've got E.T., who's the friendly, uh, heartwarming alien, and then you've got The Thing, which is just, like, bent on world destruction. So, you know, people were like, oh, we'll, we'll take our aliens of the friendly uh, flavor. Uh, but, yeah, the movie, I've actually talked about this on our regular show, but th- there's just so much density to that storytelling. Every shot has a purpose everything that they do in that movie is contributing to the overall suspense of the movie and the overall tale that they're wanting to tell and i think at the time when that came out for people it might have gone over a lot of heads but now as uh, people have gone back and revisited it people have realized hey this movie actually is really good as, well, as you've said yeah and and i mean the big thing about the thing there, there are a couple really big things with it number one the overall sense of, of paranoia you know who who is the alien inhabiting? Who is the actual bad guy? Um, you know, and the fact that Kurt Russell, you know, is, is out there, you know, kicking butt again, you know, in another role. Because I think he was, you know, just fresh off of Escape from New York at that point. So he's establishing himself as this, you know, action hero. I mean, another girl. But the thing, the thing that the, the, the thing that the thing has um, um, that that E.T. didn't was America's grandpa, Wilford Brimley. Yes. Becomes become becomes this totally psychotic killing alien morphing thing. I mean, how can you beat that for any movie? Yeah. <laughs> and he's very manipulative in the movie too. He's like, "Oh yeah, I'm fine. You can, you can let me out now. I'm I'm okay." <laughs> and I'm like, he's totally playing that charm. And uh, yeah, and I think for me, my favorite scene of the movie is actually the blood test scene where they're testing the blood of the of the people who are remaining to see who's been affected and. So much suspense in that scene, and you know that uh, you know things are going to go down and it's going to get messy pretty quickly, and it does. But when it does, it's just so spectacular because you're almost getting comfortable at that point, and then all of a sudden, just things bursting out and whatnot. Yeah. What about and, you? Do you have a favorite scene or? Well, I mean, just, just I mean, overall, you know, I mean, the movie was fantastic. But the, the biggest, the biggest thing that I always come off with this, and this is what I, you know, when I tell people when I'm talking movies with people, this is a movie that will always um, put me on the side of physical effects versus CGI. Yes. 
because of just, I mean, granted, 1982, does it hold up as much today as it did back then? Probably not. But no. what they were able to do without any computer assistance and still make it just creepy, gory, and fantastic, you can't beat it. No. And I think the thing is, is that it, it still holds up. I mean, obviously, when you watch it, you know it's fake, but it holds up a lot better than something like the Star Wars prequels, where those effects are all digital and they're all outdated. Mind you, there's a lot more pro war, uh, going on with the Star Wars prequels, but just as a general example of, yeah, physical effects trumping digital effects in a lot of ways. Right, and filming in Iceland versus filming in front of a green screen. You know, that type yeah. of um, let's move on to the movie that ended up trumping the thing at the box office, uh, E.T., the extraterrestrial. I think everybody's seen this movie. I mean, this is kind of like one of those movies that as a kid, almost everybody kind of puts in front of you as like, hey, here's a movie that you can watch and, you know, inoffensive. It's got a heartwarming tale. It's kind of got some, uh, some fright to it, at least in the level of, you know, the government coming after E.T. and whatnot. Uh, TJ, what are your thoughts on E.T.? Um, to me, arguably one of the greatest family movies of all time. Mm -hmm. um, now, it, it, and I'm going to show my age here, but I was uh, uh, six years old, you know, in 82. So okay. um, that, that opening scene or, you know, that opening series when uh, 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 Elliot encounters E.T. in that cornfield for the first time. Mm -hmm. Oh, that freaked me out. <laughs> That scared the living hell out of me right there. <laughs> oh yeah. Now, because of, of because I'm allergic to Reese's or I'm allergic to peanut butter, I never was able to get on that Reese's Pieces kick. You know that that kind of went on for about six months after the movie, so I did miss out on that. <laughs> That's kind of a tragedy too, because that uh, I think that movie pretty much was the best marketing that those uh, that candy could have gotten. Because now all of a sudden everyone's like, "Hey, it's the ET candy." Uh, I. I actually didn't watch the movie for many years because when I watched it as a kid, I was so into the movie. And then I quickly realized that as it gets on and you get to the part where E.T. gets sick and all that, like that just frightened me as a kid. I, I didn't finish the movie until I was in my teenage years when somebody's like, you haven't finished E.T.? And I ended up watching the whole movie. And <laughs> it's kind of funny because I think because I hadn't finished the movie and I didn't get that sort of emotional response that you would get watching the entire movie. That when I watched it as a teenager, I, I think it was kind of a little lost on me. And even to this day, I mean, I can appreciate it for what it is, but I think I did, definitely didn't get that full emotional resonance from it that a lot of people uh, talk about having have seen the full movie as a kid and watching it probably quite a few times as well. Oh, sure. Well, you know, and, and, you know, to that end, it's still one of like maybe two or three movies that can actually still make me cry and bawl like a little baby. Yeah. yeah every every time E.T. is in that little, you know, when he when he's dying and they throw him in that uh, that 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 clothes dryer looking thing. Yeah. It's just every time I'm by the tears are welling up, you know, I just. Yeah. <laughs> I always kind of joke, too, that, you know, E.T., you know, hopefully he doesn't come back with his race just pissed off. <laughs> just decides, hey, Elliot, I'm going to spare you, but everyone else, no. I, I kind of subscribed to the robot chick and thought that he was actually the one that they left behind on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, so keeping on this sci-fi thing, like 1982, big year for sci-fi, uh, Ridley, Scott, uh, Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Yes. Uh, definitely a movie that Ridley Scott has not been able to leave alone 
kind of like George Lucas. He comes back and he just tweaks this movie every couple of years and just, oh, I'm going to take away this. I'm going to add this. And now you're left with, I, I think it's like something like four to five cuts of that film. Right. It's kind of intense, but uh, the movie as it is, I, I enjoy. I, I don't know. I know people will say, oh, you need to watch this cut or that cut. I think I've only really watched two cuts of the film and I, I thought that was enough for me. I know some people say different cuts kind of give you a different takeaway of the film. Right. What are your thoughts? Um, well, first off, first off, full disclosure, Blade Runner is my all-time favorite number one movie. So wow. I, I was, I, you should have seen the smile on my face when I saw that this was on the sheet. Um, <laughs> the, and, and you brought up the whole you know, tinkering, different cuts. The difference between Scott and Lucas is that Ridley Scott actually improves the movie when he cuts it as opposed to Lucas who is just, you know, destroying his franchise. Um, it, 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 all the way around, it is so, it is just this great sci-fi noir that, I mean, it just envelops you. Um, from the first time I've seen it, I have seen it. I can't even probably count how many times I've seen this movie since my first viewing. And, um, I was actually blessed here about two months ago. They um, did like a re-release and had it in the theaters for like one or two days. And I managed to finally see it on the big screen. And it was like, again, the fifth cut that I had never seen before. Right. Um, you know, I think um, as far as those newer cuts go, it's nice not having the um, the Harrison Ford voiceover. I do prefer that just because it, it kind of holds your hand a little bit too much. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, just just across the board, just amazing story, amazing acting. I mean, Harrison Ford. You look, you look at that laundry list of actors they have in there. You know, Harrison Ford, Daryl Hannah, Rutger Hauer, um, Sean Young. I mean, just across the board, great actors, great acting, great direction. I I, I love this movie. And you know what? It, it's funny that you mentioned the voiceover because the first time I saw it was with the voiceover. Uh huh. And I think knowing how the plot was and then seeing the cut where they took away the voiceover. It was good that I had watched it with the voiceover because then I knew more about the plot. So I'm kind of curious if people, like their first viewing of it, knowing nothing about the plot, could take away much without that voiceover. Uh, I'm kind of curious. I mean, of course, if you've watched it with the voiceover, you then know the general plot. Sure. I'm kind of interested about that because I would love to just take somebody who's never seen that movie and just be like, here, watch this one without the voiceover and see if you can make sense of what's going on. That's a, that's a, that's actually a good idea. <laughs> Someone's gonna jump on that for sure. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I overall like the film. Uh, it definitely for me, uh, it's got so much visual spectacle to it, and it really does immerse you in this world, which I think a lot of movies try to do and they don't quite accomplish. But you can tell that you're being plopped into this living, breathing world, and I think. There's a lot of shots of just the surroundings, and I think if you don't understand like what that's for, you you might just say, "Oh, they're just just trying to show off the world." But that's exactly kind of what they're trying to do. They're trying to basically say, "This is the world that these people exist in," helping you understand the context of everything that's going on. Right, and that and that's one of the things too is that this is a movie you have to watch more than two or three times just because of context. Um, you know, because on its surface, again, great, you know, sci-fi noir image. But, I mean, at its core, it's, it's basically, 
you know, the meaning of life. Who are we? You know, the whole thing about Roy and, and his replicants is they're trying to get more time, you know, more years. If, if, if when you're sitting through that movie and you get to that end speech, the tears in the rain speech, yeah. when he starts talking about, I have seen things that nobody will ever see before and they're going to be lost. I mean, this movie is deep when it comes to, you know, context and subtext and all that stuff. I mean, this is a, a multiple viewing movie. Yeah. All right, let's uh, move on to the next uh, film here, Poltergeist. Uh, Steven Spielberg, man. This guy just ruled 1982 with an iron fist, it would seem. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, uh, Poltergeist. It's kind of funny because Poltergeist was – it kind of – It's. I looked it up, and it wasn't even rated R or anything like that, but I remember being terrified of that movie. This movie, yeah, for for a six or a seven year old, oh, you have no idea. That damn clown warped my life. <laughs> Even to this day, I still can't watch that damn movie because of that clown. Every time, yeah. and, <laughs> but here's the thing: at least you know when you take you know uh, Steven Spielberg as a producer, and mm-hmm. Tobe Cooper, the director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay, you've got Jaws and Texas Chainsaw Massacre put together into a haunted house movie, you know bad things are going to happen. Oh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> it's not going to end well for much of anybody. But, uh, yeah, no, and it's, it's just interesting because I, I, it's kind of funny because it's one of those things where I watched the movie, and I was pretty young when I watched it, as I'm sure a lot of people were. You know, mm. I, I always joke that there's a lot of these 80s horror movies that people watch, and because the rating was like PG or PG-13 or whatever, Parents are like, ah, oh, you can watch it, but it actually is legitimately terrifying. Uh, right. Like, I just, you know, the whole, like, uh, fuzzy TV screen and all that, which is so iconic. And <laughs> I think that movie, too, the reason that, for me, it still terrifies me is all the uh, sort of rumors of a curse and all that uh, about the film, how they used real skeletons in the filming of the movie and all that. Like, it, it's sort of this idea of the real life events surrounding that film influencing how I'm actually scared of that film because I'm just like, Oh, are those actual real skeletons? Is there actually a real haunting going on? Like, right. Well, you know, I mean, if you believe in the, in the poltergeist curse, I mean, you know, there's, there's, you know, the, what was it? The oldest daughter, you know, passed away. And then the, uh, the gal, uh, I don't remember her. I don't remember the actor's name off the top of my head, but, uh, uh, the gal that played Carol Ann died like, you yeah. know, years later, and then, you know, Craig T. Nelson wound up on coach. So, I mean, everybody just kind of had the bad one on that. <laughs> Craig T. Nelson obviously got the real short end of the stick there on that one. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, too soon? <laughs> it's never too soon with Craig T. Nelson. Uh, no, it's true, though, because, yeah, uh, the oldest daughter, she was murdered by her uh, boyfriend at the time, Heather yeah. O'Rourke. She had this weird, like... Just she just suddenly died. Like she, there was no symptoms before or anything like that. She just suddenly dropped dead, basically. Right, right. Uh, and it's just weird because yeah, but, uh, people are like, oh man, you know, is there a curse beyond this movie? And I don't know. I I'm kind of like, eh. but again, it, it kind of does add to uh, the film in a certain sense. And I think it's it's interesting that a movie can do that where. If it is for the purpose of basically trying to scare people about the film, then, hey, you know, it, it worked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it scared. If you believe in that kind of thing, that's one thing. But for the most part, I see it as genius marketing opportunity. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> they just recently remade the movie too, and I I watched that, and I was just like, nah, it, it it's not the same. I mean, they tried really hard to capture that spirit, but it it wasn't the same. So. Yeah, and and I just you know it's one of those things where you know and in, in, in the stage where I'm at in in my life I'm just like how can you improve on a classic original? So you know I have I have not seen the new Poltergeist and I probably won't. Um, you know multiple remakes that are you know like that new Karate Kid. I just said how do you improve upon perfection? Same thing, Poltergeist won't do it. I just yeah. it's not nah nah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and it's <clears throat> you know. For a lot of us uh, that grew up in the 80s and watched these films, it's like, for us, they're iconic, right? So, you know, somebody who's maybe never watched that film, they'll watch the new Poltergeist and be like, oh, okay, cool. But and then, like, let's... You're, you're treading on my memories here. <laughs> movies I remember. Uh, All you kids out there that watch the new Poltergeist, you go ahead, watch it, enjoy it, but then come back and see how it's really done. Come yeah. back and see how it's really supposed to be done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then watch... Poltergeist 3, because it's just a weird movie in and of itself. Uh, Poltergeist 2, I don't know. I, I, I don't... Uh, that movie's okay, but I, I feel like Poltergeist 1 and 3, for me, were my favorites. Um, You know, I didn't... I didn't... I don't remember if I've actually seen Poltergeist 3. Um, you know, because I, I, all I remember was it was like during filming, that was when the, the Carol Ann actress died. Yes. And and then they had to use like like you know midget or little people body doubles to fill in like back of the head shots and that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and the thing is, Poltergeist three, it, it's kind of interesting because it's a lot more cerebral of a film. There's a lot more sort of visual trickery. Uh, so in a sense, it's it's a lot scarier than the uh, first film. So right. If you like the first one, do check out the third one, not the remake. It's basically the takeaway of that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, next movie I guess we'll talk about is Tron, uh, a movie that also recently got kind of, a, well, more of a sequel, I guess, than a remake, but depends on who you ask. Uh, TJ, what are your thoughts on Tron? Well, you know, I mean, I know a little a little earlier I was kind of digging it at, at, at CGI. Um, this is the case where CGI in a movie works and this is, i believe was one of the first movies to actually use cgi i mean in in, in 1982 when this movie had come out and and they were making the the huge push on this on the on the disney channel at the time because it was disney that had put it out mm-hmm. um, i just remember my mind was blown by all of the imagery and everything that they were doing with it um you know, and just, I mean, the visuals on everything from, you know, the light cycles to the, you know, the giant attack tanks and, the, the, you know, the CPU and, and just across the board. And let's put it this way. The Big Lebowski is a gamer. You, you, you got to love that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Bringing it all back to actually arguably my favorite movie of all time, The Big Lebowski. Yep. <laughs> Great movie. But, yeah, it is kind of funny, too, because I, I remember in the, well sequel i guess they had uh him kind of like cgi they used him to make or use it to make him look younger and actually it, it i know some people thought it was bad i thought it was actually pretty cool to see like this uh younger uh you know version of that character so right right well i mean you know and and people can can kind of bitch about that but it makes sense i mean if you're in a you know cyber world are you really you know is, is an image going to age you know not really so i mean i didn't i didn't have a problem with that and i while i liked the newer one you know the newer one was a lot prettier and a lot shinier um i think the original just has a lot more 
I guess just a lot more nostalgia mm-hmm. for me, you know, on that end. Um, you know, here again, you know, with the marketing push that was going on at that point in time, um, you know, you had the, the Tron arcade and it was just, I mean, this crazy neon blue arcade to, to go in and, you know, jam and do the light, you know, the light cycles and all this type of stuff. I mean, how could you not go to this movie and, and not love it? You know, with the, 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 the discs, you know, the battle with the discs and all that type of stuff. I mean, they, it, it was an enjoyable movie. Um, but, uh, shit, I'm, <laughs> I'm losing my own train of thought here. No, uh, no, it, it happens to the best of us, especially as you get older, for sure. But, you know, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go in and say, like, plot-wise, it was the greatest of all time. No, I mean, it's definitely a special effects film. Um, but here again, I mean, if you love the CGI, this is the movie that really kind of kicked it off. Yeah, no, for sure. And, yeah, this the movie for, for many years was sort of the, the, sort of what you would show people of, yeah, CGI effects can, you know, be done in a movie on a larger scale. Because before they were used, but it was, you know, more for tweaking and basically sort of adding smaller things to a film. But, yeah, Tron was definitely bigger scale. Right. Um, on to a uh, sequel to Star Trek, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Khan! Khan. Uh, <laughs> mostly everybody's favorite Star Trek movie. I say mostly because there's always the, 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 the few people that like Star Trek Four or some people that like the new ones. But Star Trek Two, general consensus, it's the best Star Trek movie. Of course, like I said, you'll get outliers. But uh, TJ, what do you think of Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan? Well, you know, I I am in that group that says of of the original cast Star Trek movies mm-hmm. uh, that this one is the best. Uh, and and the reason why, at least for me and my sensibilities, why it's the best, Ricardo Montalban is Khan, greatest Star Trek villain. Oh yeah, for sure. Out of it. I mean, it was just across, uh, just just across the entire scope of it. This was a great revenge movie. This was, you know, again going into subtext and all type of stuff. You know, great sci-fi. It's Star Trek. You gotta love that. But at the end of the day, you know, Khan's wife was inadvertently killed by Kirk. Yeah. So he's out for you know he's out for blood, you know, and 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 um. One of the genius things that I that I that I had discovered over the last couple of years, and I did, I wasn't even aware about it, and I don't know that really any at the time anybody was. Um, Shatner and Montalban, you know, Kirk and and Khan, never shared the same space together. They were never face to face when they filmed. No. How how awesome is that? When you've got you know a good guy bad guy battle going on, and they're not even near each other. You know, they no. never. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah, and I mean, that shows that, you know, really it, it came to sort of everyone working together to build that rivalry because, of course, you know, the two actors, you know, they had a great rapport, but then, you know, that movie really came down to, like, how it was directed and how it was edited to sort of bring it all together, and I think that uh, you're right that in a sense, it's an accomplishment that, yeah, these two actors completely separate. They're filmed in separate locations at separate times, but yet somehow it was all brought together in the end. Yeah, and and, and really, you know, the another key point to take away from this, too, is um, it had a, a pre-cocaine, pre-Jenny Craig, hot Christie Alley. Oh, as yeah. Opposed to, as opposed to the modern-day train wreck that we have now. So, you know, mm-hmm. back at that, kids. <laughs> 
Kirstie Alley. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember too. I was like, oh, oh, she's so hot in this movie. And I'm like, oh, I wonder what she looks like now. I looked it up. Like, oh God, no. <laughs> Time has not treated you well. Uh, and of course, now of course the, you know here we go with a you know a 25 year old spoiler alert, but mm-hmm. uh, I don't know how many people didn't shed a tear with the ending of that movie. Mm. Now you know, and and nowadays because you know back then we didn't have franchises, we didn't have oh like this is going to have a sequel. We know this is part of a trilogy and all this type of stuff. And and when 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 Spock died, oh my! Like my mom who grew up with it, well, gosh, she was freaking out, you know. So I said, "Don't worry, they'll bring him back." No, you don't know that. So. In fact, the next movie will be just dedicated to that. <laughs> and then the next one's gonna have whales, mom. Don't worry, I I got this all figured out. It's it's, it's okay. It's okay. It's just a movie, but it's Spock. <laughs> And there's going to be some weird one that Captain Kirk directs. It's, it's a real weird one. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, this is definitely my favorite Star Trek film. Uh, I, I even, too, I, I'm, I can't even watch Into Darkness because for me it's like, I know people are like, oh, they do enough different with it. I'm like, no, for me, they're trying to tread on too much of that water for me to be able to appreciate it. So Yeah, you know, yeah, Into Darkness, I mean, while it was okay, I think – the biggest problem with you know with that and really with a lot of Hollywood stuff in general is you know there's there's no more originality so we just need to keep retreading stuff and you know there there's so many other options they could have went with why retread on you know this this epic number one of all time Star Trek movie you yeah. know there's so many other avenues they could have went instead they go that route yeah I I I enjoyed that but here again nah nah. No, I agree. Um, let's move on to uh, an Arnold Schwarzenegger joint, uh, Conan the Barbarian, uh, starring the voice of Darth Vader himself uh, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. Great movie. Uh, it, it's kind of one of those great high fantasy movies that we got a few of that in the 80s, and it's a genre that is kind of coming back with like stuff like Game of Thrones and all that, but I think people don't realize how much of a a big thing it was back in the 80s. And I think Conan especially sort of heralded that as a, a franchise. Or, sorry, more so as a genre than anything else. But, um, yeah, TJ, what did you – I mean, you've probably seen Conan the Barbarian, but what are your uh, thoughts on that there? See, your enemies driven before you and hear the lamentation of the women's. Yeah, no, no. That movie is just – it's – you know, and, and I and – I, I don't know if it kickstarted it, but you know, like '82 and '83, there was a lot of that sword and sorcery, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. stuff that was coming out. You know, like Conan and Beastmaster and, and Tor, the Last Warrior, and you know, all this type of stuff. Uh, Fire yeah. and Ice, um, you know, and and I mean, to me, this was I, I would put this more than Pumping Iron as Arnold's breakout role. Um, you know, oh, a definite sure. kind of. You know, kind of put him in that in that category to where yes, we can give him a couple of lines and you know have him look good, and we can make a star out of him. Um, now, I was never really much of a Conan fan in the way of the comic books or the uh, the the original novels, but I mean, this movie to me was just was epic. You know, it was it it was 
I was always more of a sci-fi guy and not really much on that, you know, bare bones-ish, you know, type of stuff like, you know, say this or, you know, anything low tech. Uh, you know, but this movie was just, just, you know, action and just across the board. I mean, a great movie. Mm-hmm. Um, now, because it was rated R, obviously I didn't get to go see it, you know, in the theater or anything like that until, you know, later with video release. Yeah. Uh, my introduction to this Way back in the day, I don't know if you remember this or not, but Marvel used to, Marvel Comics used to get um, comic book adaptation licenses. Yes. So they would they would have adaptations for pretty much any movie that would. Um, and so my introduction really to Conan the Barbarian was through the Marvel Comics two issue adaptation, and and once I got through reading that, and then all of a sudden I saw trailers on the TV. I was like, this is an actual movie. This is a real deal. Holy cow. <laughs> You know, my, my my mind is blown, and I'm just waiting for you know the opportunity to finally see it. And when I did, it didn't disappoint. Yeah, I mean, I remember too. Uh, I wanted to see the movie for the longest time because the cover was just such a badass cover. I mean, you've got Arnold holding up the sword; he's caressed by a woman, or you know, a woman's caressing him, and it's just it's such a great cover because you're just like, like even knowing nothing about the movie, you just look at that cover and you're like, this dude looks like he can get stuff done. Like I, yes. I believe that I, you know, I'd follow this guy into battle. Uh, and I remember my, my, my parents were like, Oh no, it's like, it's based on a comic. It's based, you know, it's like, those are never good. Those, those are never, uh, anything worth uh, watching. And it's kind of funny now that, you know, we've got things like the Avengers and all that. And I mean, not to say that, you know, Conan the Barbarian uh, heralded all of that, but it did sort of pave the way for good adaptions of these comics. And I think that a lot of people even forget that it's actually based off of a comic. But uh, definitely, you know, in a bigger sense, it sort of brought about more higher fantasy stuff. But I think in a way, too, it sort of said comic book movies can be done well, too. I mean... At that point, there wasn't too much. I mean, in a few years, you're going to get Batman and whatnot. You had Superman before. I guess Superman, yeah. Superman, yeah, because, well, Superman had come out in 78, you know, and then, yeah. of course, at that point, we believed a man could fly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think I think with Conan, you know, whether whether the, the impetus of it came from, you know, the original, was it, and, and forgive me if I'm wrong, whether it was uh, Arthur Conan Doyle that had wrote, written those books, I can't quite remember who origin, you know, who wrote those original novels. Um, but then, yeah. you know, with the popularity of those Marvel comics, I mean, it was a no-brainer yeah. to get to get a movie property out for it because you know it was one of Marvel's best-selling books. Um, was it just me, or the first time that I saw the movie because of James Earl Jones being in there? With, you know, was 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 it just me, or at some point in time were you wanting him to <laughs> wanting it to be? Ah, you killed my dad. Oh, I am your father, and then have some, you know, crazy, stupid, stupid crap like that. <laughs> well, that's kind of it, right? Like, I, I watched this movie well after uh, Star Wars had come out. I remember, uh, I hear, it, I'm like, yeah, this guy sounds like Darth Vader a bit, you know? <laughs> of course, I'm young enough that I couldn't quite make the connection, but uh, I'm, it, there's a little hint in my mind. I'm like, I must be crazy because that sounds like Darth Vader. I wasn't crazy, uh, but. Yeah, too, and I mean, you're right that this movie did sort of make Arnold Schwarzenegger a more of a worldwide uh, phenomenon, because I think Pumping Iron got him into a select audience's eyes. You know, people knew of him, right. but not on the scale that he's going to 
get to when he gets when this movie comes out and then ultimately Terminator and whatnot. So, you know, obviously Terminator, those movies sort of did a, did a pretty good job of bringing them in front of a lot of people's eyes. But I think this movie, too, it definitely uh, helped kind of pave the way for Terminator and uh, his other successes to come. So Right. Um, let's talk another about another action movie. Uh, this one, funny enough, uh, well, Rambo First Blood, it was actually filmed near where I lived growing up. So... I, I can watch that movie, and it's funny because I can actually identify all the parts that they're filming. I know where everything is, which is kind of funny. So, right. Uh, but yeah, First Blood, TJ. What do you think of uh, Rambo First Blood? Um, you know, it's it's one of those movies where the original. If, if you compare the original to the subsequent sequels, it is a completely different beast. It is. Yeah, you know, because I mean, in this original movie, you've basically it's just the story of, you know, a, just a, a a Vietnam veteran who's who, who who comes back after being a POW, and he all he wants to do is go and see his friend, you know, and go and see a former, um, you know, uh, company uh, co. I God, I can't even think of the damn name now off the top of my head, but you know, he was he was a partner with him back in the unit, you know. Mm-hmm. And and all he wants to do is go and see his friend, and instead yeah. uh, Brian Danny he just busting his balls and 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 just won't <laughs> leave him be. So what's the poor boy to do? So they you know they end up arresting him, and 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 it was it was probably one of the the most um, uh, uh, traumatic shower scenes I think I've ever seen before. Oh yeah, <laughs> that and Psycho definitely did not uh, help the shower credibility there. <laughs> Don't forget to get behind the ears. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's funny too because that movie does a good job of basically showing how Rambo just gets fed up with everything, and right. you know it, it's a slow and steady approach. Like they don't just have him just be like, "Oh, you guys piss me off, I'm gonna kill you all." It takes him a while, and he goes through quite a bit before he's just like, "Okay, you know, like I've tolerated you guys kind of harassing me. I even." you know, dealt with you guys bringing me into your police station, but, you know, the the PTSD of uh, the Vietnam War is just like, okay, too much. Right. And, and, yeah. There, I mean, there was a little bit, you know, like, you know, as he's making his escape in the woods and accidentally kills one of the, you know, one of the guys, or I think, I think it was one of the cops that accidentally killed one of the other guys. I don't remember. Yeah. Specifically, but you know, and then the one falls out of the helicopter, so they blame his death on him, and is you know, I, did, I didn't do it, you know, and <laughs> um, but you know, at 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 the end of the day, it was it was one of those movies where it it really made you root for him, yeah. you know, despite despite all else, you know, it's like, hey, come on, you know, you're you're you know, this is uh, Brian Danny, he is just a a dick in this movie, is really what it boils down to. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> but. Um, what's funny is, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, again, 20, 25 years spoiler, um, you know, he ends up getting arrested and going to the, the, the federal rock breaking facilities, you know, originally the original ending on that was they were going to, he was going to die. Yeah. Much, the, much the, the original first blood book. Yeah. John Rambo was not supposed to survive that movie. Yeah. Which very poignant of an ending, but of course, uh, very hard to do a sequel when he's dead. So. Exactly. <laughs> they actually even filmed that scene too. So I think the original intention was to do that, but I think 
the idea behind that is they showed it to test audiences and everyone uh, liked Rambo and wanted to see more and they're like, well, I guess we can't kill him because people actually really like him. So, and then you know, of course Rambo Part Two uh, just goes bonkers and then it gets even more bonkers after that. I feel like Rambo Part Two for me it's like, okay, it's not too bonkers, but uh, you know by the time you get to like three and the the one that came out like well actually probably close to a decade ago or so, uh, those movies just get like just bonkers where he's just like completely unkillable he's just like this max level predator just going after people in the entire movie so well sure i mean you know running around vietnam shirtless and making people explode with a bow and arrow i mean that you know right there solidifies him as a complete badass uh i think if they if they had killed huff rambo they just could have had the they could have just you know had rambo's kid come in and they just could have called it second blood and called it good you know yeah um, I always found the irony, though, when it came to the sequels, I mean, you know, with with the way things have come out, you know, like like with 9-11 and the current, you know, create terrorist craze and all that type of stuff. A lot of people send, seem to tend to forget that Rambo three Rambo was actually helping out Al Qaeda. Yeah, he was actually there helping out the Taliban and that they, they were again one of those other mind blowing things right there. It's just like, wow, man. Um yeah. But like I said, you, you take you take Rambo two and Rambo three. It, it is just a separate beast from that original quiet little movie set in. I think it was supposed to be set in Oregon, but it was filmed up in your area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was. So that was pretty exciting. Um, let's move on, I guess, to uh, the next movie, Dark Crystal, which you just watched last night. Right. Yeah. So I'm fresh off. <laughs> it's fresh in your mind. Uh, what did you think of Dark Crystal? Lord of the Rings meets the Muppets. That's, you know, my initial knee-jerk reaction to the movie. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> actually pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, for, you know, for what it was being Jim Henson's, you know, first attempt at trying to do something, you know, epic in scope beyond Sesame Street and the Muppet Show, you know, with his... With, with with the Muppets and, you know, with the puppetry and what he was trying to do. Um, I, I don't think it was a bad movie, um, but I think it just relied a little too much on, you know, those, again, you know, RR, you know, uh, Tolkien reference, you know, Tolkien stereotypes and archetypes, you know, when it, when it comes to that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought for what they were able to do again in a pre CGI world, I thought they pulled it off and they pulled it off really well. Um, a couple of, you know, things that I had the issues with as far as like, you know, the putting the crystal back together and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the good elders and the bad elders merge back together into one and they just fly off. And it's like, wait a second. Um, aren't you going to like, you know, kind of stick around and, you know, help, rebuild some of the shit that you people have tore up <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. Um, but but i think this movie was a great precursor for what inevitably became you know henson's better um magic and magic and sorcery type movie in labyrinth yes you know i think it was a great step you know the great building block for that and the dark crystal didn't do well but i think it it was a case where you have Jim Henson and Frank Oz and they just go to town making this movie and great movie. But I think they kind of had too much freedom on this movie because you can tell they kind of just went a little crazy with it. They're like, oh, 
Can we make this this puppet look a little bit weirder? Oh, we can? Oh, okay. Let, then let's uh, make him a little bit crazier. And yeah, Labyrinth, it's still a pretty weird movie. Uh, but you, it's funny to think of Jim Henson in the movies when they eventually started to do uh, like the, the Muppets uh, movies and whatnot. And kind of, they seem to have toned it down a bit. So I, I wonder if Jim Henson tried this and people were like, you know, we like this, but a little too weird. But... Right. Well, you know, and I mean, during that time frame, um, sci-fi movies and, and, and sword and sorcery movies in general never really fared well at the box office. Um, mm. I don't know specifically when that turning point came. It might have been, you know, the, the Star Wars movies kind of helped build, you know, build up to that. But I think it, it, it wasn't until much later when the special effects were able to equal the director's vision, I guess, you know, for lack of a better term. Uh, I think it, 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 if they were able to do, like, say, a modern-day remake of Dark Crystal, because I've heard rumors that they were trying to do a sequel for it. Yeah. Uh, I think if they still kept the physical puppetry but added in, like, a little bit of CGI to, you know, help kind of sweeten it and tighten it up, I think it would look amazing. Yeah. No, um, I... I think this movie, I mean, you're right that it, it definitely could use a touch-up, but I think if they touched it up in the right ways, it, it could actually be a really good movie nowadays because people definitely sort of have that sort of mental mindset for a movie like this nowadays. I think when this movie first came out, it was probably just the same thing as the thing where people watched it, they were probably just like, okay, this is not what we're used to, but now we're kind of used to movies kind of being a little bit bonkers. Like, well, and when, when your portray, when your protagonist kind of look is freaky, you know, kind of freaky dog look, dog person looking thing. I don't need, you know, what, what do they call them? The gelflings? Yeah. Uh, you know, when they, they have kind of that almost quasi dog animal. Yeah. Relatability that factor played there. Um, but you could definitely tell it was directed by Henson and Oz because there was um, was that, that, that the scene where um, the emperor had just died. And so uh, Chamberlain and whomever the other one who eventually became the emperor was are having that sword, you know, cutting the rock contest or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and you know, like the first guy hits it and he has that that typical Jim Henson puppetry look where he's uh, doing his nodding of the head and looking around, you know, like, like you see that all the time with all the Muppet type stuff. And, and then, and as my girlfriend had pointed this out to me and, and, and when Chamberlain does his thing and, and he has this crazy Grover look to him when he's doing this full body shake and the yell, you know, you know, so you could definitely tell that these guys, you know, that it was, it was, it was definitely a Henson and Oz, you know, direction to it. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what did you think of Chamberlain's uh, whining all the time? You know, with the, oh oh yeah it's it, it that and there's like a few other things in this movie that like honestly i've watched the movie in the past and i haven't rewatched it in a while just because yeah like stuff like that just kind of like it it's it's good for the universe i guess and the the, the building of the universe but oh for me i'm just like that's just so annoying <laughs> <laughs> I can I can always tell when my, my now my girlfriend loves this movie and I oh, can always really? when she's watched it because for like a week after she will sit there and do the <laughs> and it's kind of funny too because there's a lot of like because obviously this movie is just full of these little creatures and whatnot so they have them just making these kind of noises all throughout the movie and yeah it's 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 pretty fun but 
yeah, I mean, it's a movie that I can watch in in small doses. Like, I'll watch it, and then I'll kind of, like, leave it for a while. Right, It's yeah. probably due for a rewatch, though, one of these days. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you know, it's one of those type of movies. I mean, I know as, as a kid, it, for, for me personally, when I was a kid, this movie wouldn't have held my attention. Mm-hmm. But for kids that are into this type of thing, like... Um, you know, kids that are into the role-playing game, sword and sorcery. This is definitely a movie that, that would be geared towards, you know, slightly older kids, like maybe eight or nine years old. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, uh, let's move on to uh, the final movie of 1982 that we're going to talk about, and that's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yes. Sean Penn's, I guess, well, uh, feature film debut. Uh Man, this movie, I this is actually, in terms of like, I guess it's kind of more of a comedy more than anything else, but uh, man, it, it, it's one of my favorite movies just personally, just because it's such a great movie in that it really does capture the high school life. Uh, so you've got Jennifer Jason, Jennifer Jason Lee, yeah, that's a yeah. mouthful, yeah. Uh, yeah. who funny enough was in The Hateful Eight this year, uh, totally unrecognizable from how she was in the Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Uh, you got Phoebe Cates, uh, oh, she's drop dead gorgeous in this film. Uh, and of course, Sean Penn, and you've got a few other, uh, great characters. TJ, what do you think of Fast Times at Ridgemont High? This is this is one of those great 1980s coming of age films. Oh, yeah. You know, they, 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 and I, I, John Hughes didn't direct it, but it almost felt like a like a like a like basically an R-rated John Hughes film. You know, yeah. um, but I mean, across the board, like like you know, uh, uh, Sean Penn and Spicoli, you gotta love him. You know yeah. his. His interaction with uh, Roy Walston's oh god, help me out with the teacher's name. Um, oh, I'm just trying to think here. Uh, it'll come to me. Yeah, because it's it's been a while since I've watched the movie. But I mean, there, oh, Mr. Hand. That's what it was. What was it? Mr. Hand. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> kind of but, like a weird name, but yeah. Yeah, you know, but you know, uh, you know, uh, you know. Oh, did you bring pizza for everybody? Well, here we need to share. It's, oh, you dick! You know, I mean, that's you know, that would be classic interaction there. Yeah. And, and and let's be honest, when when that when when watching that movie, you as 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 uh, an adolescent teenage boy, you immediately put yourself in that dream state of Judge Reinhold's watching Phoebe Cates come out of that pool. Yes. There is a reason that scene is iconic, and it is it is phenomenal <laughs> it is <laughs> definitely well worth the uh, age appropriate <laughs> yeah that's it <laughs> uh no i mean i this movie uh I, I think the one thing that a lot of people don't remember about this film or it kind of gets lost over is that you know all the characters in the film have a great arc where it all kind of gets paid off at the end like judge reinhold's character uh brad you know he starts off just kind of like floating around through life he's not too happy with his job and you know at the end he ends up getting promoted to uh, a store manager of a convenience store uh you know phoebe cates you know she's got you know dating issues with some guys and whatnot and she eventually works it all out jennifer jason lee she gets pregnant in the film and uh you know kind of has to reconcile this relationship that she has that's now awkward that she has this pregnancy with this guy 
Right. Uh, so the movie, you know, in a sense, it's great because even though it's only like a two hour ish long film, you're basically seeing these characters sort of grow over the course of the film. And unlike a lot of other films where it's like, okay, well, we don't know what's going to happen to these characters or we're going to pay off in the future film. It's a very nice film in that it sort of introduces to these characters and pays off on their their plots by the end of the movie. And it's just really simple in that sense, which I've always appreciated. Right. And that's why, you know, the good, the good uh, coming of age comedies, those really good teenage films, mm-hmm. uh, don't, you know, with movies like um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High or, you know, if you go further out, you know, Breakfast Club, they, 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 they are more than just, you know, teenage wacky hijinks. Yeah. You know, have, they have, you know, good moments of drama, good moments of pathos, and they have, like you say, the really good quality payoff at the end that actually you feel like, okay, I've invested a good hour and a half on this. I don't yes. feel like I've wasted my time watching this. And that's why, here again, one of the reasons why this movie holds up today as, you know, a cinematic classic, I guess, if, if, if you want to go that route. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And what I always find interesting about the film, this is kind of like a behind-the-scenes tidbit, is Cameron Crowe, who wrote the movie, and obviously he went on to some great success with uh, Jerry Maguire and Almost Famous and all that, but he actually uh, went undercover, quote-unquote, as a high schooler to understand how uh, teenagers are and just because he knew that in order to write the book that would ultimately become the film, he needed to understand how they were. So he actually went undercover at a high school to understand how it is. So basically it was the plot of 21 Jump Street that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know and then he, he wrote the film so i always kind of find that interesting that you know he's like well i gotta write this movie about high schoolers but i really don't know too much about what they're like oh i'll just go undercover and see how see what they're really like so you know and i, I would love to be undercover to see how he pulled that off <laughs> apparently he just looked really young and so they just put him in and nobody ever questioned him about it so that's it's, it's it's great, and uh, of course, he, he doesn't have too much uh, to his name nowadays, you know, with movies like We Bought a Zoo and Aloha, but, you know, definitely back uh, back then, he was definitely a pretty good name for these coming-of-age stories, especially Almost Famous, which, obviously, well, uh, later on in the years, but right, great movie as well. All right, let's move on to music. That's uh, wrapping up movies, but let's move on to music. Uh be uh, sort of neglectful to not mention the juggernaut of the year that was Michael Jackson's Thriller. Uh, that just basically came out and kind of, I well, just hit pop culture like a, like a, you know, I don't know what the analogy where I was going with this analogy, but it was it was a pretty pretty successful album to say the least. Um, TJ, you've no doubt listened to this album, I'm sure. This, I, I wouldn't call it so much an album as I would a phenomenon. Yeah. I, I mean, I even own this album. And I'm, you know, it's it's one of those, this is one of those rare instances where my when I was a young kid that my mom probably did the only hip, cool thing that she's ever done. And that was to, you know, give me, get me uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller for Christmas. Um, it, it it was one of those things when, when it first hit, when it first came out, um you have to remember, I mean, MTV was a different beast at that point. It actually played music videos. Yeah. Um, but, and, and I, was, I was just watching a special about, you know, because with the passing of Prince here recently, um, 
the, a couple things on the internet was talking about the rivalry between the two. Yeah. And one of the things they were talking about was in those early days of music video, how um, they really didn't cover a lot of black artists. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when, when the first single hit, when Billie Jean hit, it didn't get as much airplay as they had expected. So then they released Beat It. Um, mm-hmm. And it got a little more presence because you had Eddie Van Halen playing the guitar on there. It was more rock and roll. And, okay, this is something the kids will get into. Yeah. When they put out the Thriller video, that was the end of it. That was, yeah. that just blew it off the map. I, you know, hands down. And, and the album itself is great. But, but when you think about this album and you think about the Michael Jackson phenomenon, it all started with that Thriller video. Oh, yeah. And it's... It's a great video, too, because a lot of videos, you know, half the time it doesn't make any sense, or especially back then, it was pretty much just concert footage or something else, but... Right. Like, Thriller had production values. It had Vincent Price doing voiceover. It had zombies and everything, and it was like... Yes. (laughs) You know, people underestimate just how important this was, because not only was it a music video, but it was, you know, it had a in a loose sense of plot, you know, not like, you know, anything groundbreaking or anything, but it had a plot and it had that spectacle. And, you know, obviously now music videos sort of have embraced that as time goes on, but Thriller was, that was it. Like that was when people started saying, okay, no, these aren't just going to be, Hey, we're going to put this music out and we'll put some clips of people jumping around on stage. It was now, okay, you actually have to put serious thought into this. You have to hire a good director who's got a good vision for this. Like, mm-hmm. a lot more had to go into it after Thriller. And that, yeah, Thriller, just in that one song along, did that. But, of course, uh, you know, other great songs, as you mentioned, too, uh, Billie Jean and Beat It. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I mean, like you say, it's it, it, how groundbreaking that one, you know, little moment, because, because, I mean, prior to that, you had two to three minutes, like you said, of people jumping around, concert footage, nonsensical, whatever. And then all of a sudden you've got, oh my, you know, John Landon, the, the guy that directed Animal House, the guy that directed Twilight Zone, the movie. Yeah. In, and does like this 15, 20 minute epic. And I mean, it just changed the entire landscape of music videos and how it can be, you know, used as, you know, not just a promotional tool, but entertainment as well. I mean, just across the board, this 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 was a game changer for everything. Um, Now, as far as far as, you know, musically on that, um, there were the album in and of itself. It's not my genre of music, per se, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but. One of the mis- great mysteries that 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 really came from Thriller, and I'm still trying to figure out to this day what exactly does "Hey Mama Sa Kamakusa" what does that actually mean? I'm still trying to figure that out. So that's like 25 years greatest mystery of all time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Got to tap uh, somebody to figure that out. When you find out, let me know because I'm, I'm kind of curious about that myself. <laughs> No, I mean, I, I agree. It's not my genre of music, but it's also kind of funny, too, because I think, in a sense, too, everyone knows of Thriller, because, in a sense, it kind of transcends genre. In a sense, I mean, uh, you know, I'm not going to be listening to it as often as I would a lot of the other music I listen to, but... Uh, right. Um, let's move on to another big album that came out this year. Not as big, but uh, still arguably pretty big. Iron Maiden's The Number of the Beast. Yes. Uh 
now it's kind of a funny story behind me in this album because I remember when I started to buy records and CDs again back when you did that instead of just buying things on iTunes or whatever else right. or <laughs> Spotify. Um, I I was walking down the aisle and I just see this album cover and I see this like zombie looking thing and some devil and there's like some cool fonts and I'm just like I have no clue what this album sounds like but I have to pick this up right now just based on the cover art alone and I was not disappointed at the least but I think it's kind of funny because uh, I don't even know if there's any real connection to the album art and the music aside from the fact that both are pretty generally pretty awesome so <laughs> uh, but I'm not going to complain because, yeah, it's pretty good. So uh, what do you think, TJ, of Number of the Beast? Yeah, see, now we're getting into my genre of music. Now we're getting into, you know, where I can wax the good philosophical on this. Number of the Beast, I would say probably, oh, if I had, if I had to rank it, probably, if not the number one, the at least a close second to the greatest metal, I mean, just Iron Maiden album of all time. Yeah. I, 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 when you've got, when you've got, all you need to have really is, is two songs off this album. And there's far more than just two you can go with. Mm-hmm. But between Number of the Beast, Run to the Hills, one of the greatest metal songs of all time. Yeah. When, I, when I'm out doing karaoke, I, I close with Run, Run to the Hills. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's this epic song. And, you know, everybody sits there and talks about how, um, you know, heavy metal music, oh, it's all about, you know, drugs and devil worshiping and all that. You actually look at the liner notes for the songs off of uh, Number of the Beast. Now, mm-hmm. okay, Number of the Beast, yes. Okay, yes, we will go on, you know, the whole ceremonial rising of the dead, whatever you want to call that. Yeah. But, you know, Run to the Hills was about, you know, the 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 the, the West the Great Western expansion and how, you know, they kind of you know, kind of screwed over to the, 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 the Native Americans. Um, the Trooper, where uh, the song is about, you know, World War I. Um, I'm trying to think, was, was Wasted Years on that album? I can't remember now. Um, but it, it, what, what it showed to me was that, you know, metal, and not just metal music, but music in general, can, can transcend its genre and actually cover far more topics if you actually pay attention yeah. to what's going on. Uh, by the way, that was not on the original. It was album. not. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't. But, I wasn't quite sure. So. <laughs> no, for sure. And I think you touch on this because when this album came out, uh, like conservatives did not <laughs> take kindly to this album, uh, <laughs> and you know, I guess in a, in a sense, understandably so. I mean, again, if you don't look into what the lyrics mean, you go just based off of the, the, the awesome cover art, by my opinion, but... Uh, oh, yeah. Well, any anything with Eddie on it is, is you know, the, the, the Iron Maiden mascot, Eddie. Anything yeah. on it is is phenomenal. It's just, it's it's great, great cover art. Yeah. But no, the other... Sorry, oh, yeah, continue. No, sorry. Oh, oh, I was just gonna say the the other thing. I mean, with 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 not you know just um, number of the beast, but just Iron Maiden in general. The the dual guitar attack from from the dual guitar players. I mean, is just amazing and mind blowing. And you take Bruce Dickinson as a vocalist. To me, one of the greatest metal vocalists of all time with his operatic range. And and a prime example, Run to the Hills, um, where they're just coming out of the lead guitar, and he starts with the really low, uh, and gets all the way up. I mean, he's got to go like I would say probably six octaves mm-hmm. in that in that fifteen second time frame. 
yeah, Bruce Dickinson is 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 a, is a freaking metal god as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah, and you know a lot of people put him up there with uh, you know like some Ozzy and whatnot, and understandably so because he really does understand uh, you know what it's all about. Uh, yeah, uh, let's see. Let's move on to Duran Duran. Not really my music, but it was still a pretty pretty big album that came out, and that was Rio. Uh, not really. <laughs> Not really my style, even less so, I guess, than Thriller, but uh, I, I, I always, like, even though I didn't like their music, uh, I always appreciated their music videos, because it was just, it was always, like, some kind of adventure they were going on, which is great. <laughs> you know, it, it's one of those things where you can, you can easily, I mean, easily dismiss Duran Duran as style over substance, mm-hmm. because for, you know, a good you know, a good two to three years, they pretty much were defining the look of what everybody out there was, was going with, yeah. uh, between that, uh, Peter Nagel, um, or, uh, I think his name is Nagel, Nigel. I can't remember that, that cover art with the, you know, the dark haired smiling girl, you know, from yeah. this artist, everybody kind of went that way. Plus, you know, the feathered hair and the, you know, just that, 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 not I wouldn't say androgynous look, but definitely the pretty boy look. Yes. And and you know, that music, um, while I wouldn't say that it was British New Wave, you know, because I, I kind of classify that more as like the cure and, you know, uh Susie and the Banshees and then those type of acts. Yeah. But uh you know, here again, these guys kind of defined that pop sound for that time frame. Mm-hmm. Um and the one the one thing that I will always say, if people sit there and say, you know, Duran Duran is just, you know, cookie cutter, no, no, no. I always say, take a look at, and I'm hoping, John, I, I have to remember because there's three Taylors in this band. Three yes. guys, last name of Taylor, and none of them are related. Um, John Taylor's bass playing is so damn good. Yeah. You can definitely tell he has that Motown, um, like chic influence, and he puts it in that in there. And it, it, it that that's why I actually do like Duran Duran. I'm not you know like a huge Duran Duran fan, but I do like their music. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and so you, when you have songs like um, you know again Rio, Save a Prayer, I can't remember here again. I can't remember if Hungry Like the Wolf was on the Rio album or not. It was. It was. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, just, you know, across the board, when you, when you look at it and here again, these guys were putting out hit after hit after hit and you could dismiss it as, oh, it's because the bubblegum teeny bopper girls are just digging on it and loving it. No stuff like that becomes a hit and becomes popular because it, it ends up a lot of people end up liking it. It's why they call it pop music, popular music. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's easily dismissible, but, 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 you know, again, let me, this, this is probably the first time you're ever going to hear somebody say, Duran Duran, much like Iron Maiden, if you go in and actually go a little bit deeper into it, yeah. you can actually get more out of the music and more out of the meaning and texture and, and, and musicality of the music um, than you would just with a cursory glance. Yeah, and what I always find so interesting is, like, I didn't even realize that they were still together until, like, a couple of years ago. I was at South by Southwest in Austin, and they ended up playing a show there. Oh, and yeah? And people <laughs> were like, and welcome to the stage, Duran Duran. I'm like, wait, 
those, that band from the eighties. But I realized <laughs> that they actually like they broke up for a bit, but they ended, like it was only like three or four years that they broke up and they got back together. But generally speaking, since nineteen eighty two, they've still been touring. They've still been recording music. They still do their thing, which is impressive because uh, I don't think. Uh, if you ever heard Duran Duran, you would think, oh, they're still doing their thing to this day. Uh, I was surprised, to be honest. But Yeah, and I mean, they go through all their lineup changes. Like their guitar player, um, Andy Taylor, who, I mean, just a great, great guitar player, I think would have been better served in a, like, rock, you know, like a hard rock, almost metal band than he would have been in Duran Duran. Because mm-hmm. uh, if you listen to... Um, there, there, there was a time where they kind of did break up like around 85 or 86. And that was when um, they had formed kind of a super group, um, John Taylor and Andy Taylor from Duran Duran, with uh, Tony Thompson, the drummer from Chic, and, and Robert Palmer, who you might remember from like, you know, Addicted to Love and, yeah. uh, you know, those, those type of... Um, had, a, had a group called Power Station. And that's where you could really see the, the 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 musicality of these two guys from duran duran yeah. um and then you know again various slam changes but to be able to see them still out there to this day um and i'm not sure who's like still in the band whether or not you know but but the fact of the matter is they're still out there people are still paying to see them i remember when they you know all five of the original members are coming back together and this was i think maybe 2009 2010 yeah. um for us kids of the 80s that was just a, a big huge deal you know and it, oh, i yeah. mean there's no way you'd be able to get a ticket if you tried yeah and i didn't manage to see him there unfortunately but like it was funny i totally missed that they had gotten together and again it was only until i was at that south by southwest right. they were doing i was like wait what but it, it was great. They, you know, it it was amazing to watch them play because I think uh, the only real constant has been Nick Rhodes. Uh, he's still, he's kind of the, well, he kind of, well, he doesn't do the league vocals, but uh, actually, I guess Simon LeBond, he's still, he was still there too. So uh, yeah. those two have kind of been, I guess, the biggest staples of it. They're still hanging around, but uh yeah, no, it was great to watch them perform because it's like you could tell they still care. Like they've never, they didn't slouch. They weren't phoning it in or anything like that. They still, you could tell they actually had a passion for what they do, which is great. I mean, not many bands can say that except for probably the Rolling Stones, which right. I don't, I don't know about those guys. They're they're just they're on, on a whole different level. Those that group. So right. <laughs> Um, let's move on to Prince. You were, uh, you know, mentioning that, yeah, he recently passed away, but 1982 was a big year for him with his album, 1999. Uh, yeah, interesting album to say the least. Uh, I think, I don't know, what are are your thoughts first off on, uh, Prince's album, 1999? Um, love it. 19 or 1999 is what it is. If I had to sit there, if someone was going to ask me, what is your favorite, like, pop song? Like, if you were to listen to your standard pop, we're going to play the same song five times an hour type radio, 1999 would be my all-time favorite song when it comes to that. Um, First off, Prince was a musical genius. He was, I mean, the guy was a phenomenal artist. Every album that he put out was his vision because he was... I, I I don't know control freak. Yeah, you could probably go that route with it, sure. Yeah. But <clears throat> but when you take a look at songs like 1999, 
um, Little Red Corvette and Delirious. Mm-hmm. I mean, this guy could. This guy was, you know, Picasso and Rembrandt when it came to music. <laughs> I mean, even now, the, granted, this was his fifth album, and and, and I'm from Montana. And, and we actually just caught, I don't know if you, if you caught this on our show, not trying to do a, an inadvertent plug here. Hey, that's what this uh, podcast is partially about, so. <laughs> but, you know, we, we had ourselves a little Prince retrospective, uh, you know, after he had died. And, you know, in there, I, 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 I had made the comment that, you know, when you're a six-year-old, you know, white boy from Montana, you're not going to get exposed to a whole lot of you know R and B soul, you know uh, I mean even rap music. I mean we I knew, I had no idea who the hell the Sugar Gang you know the Sugar Hill Gang was. I didn't know Rappers Delight until I was like fifteen. Yeah. Um, but thanks again to MTV, I'm sitting there and all of a sudden there's just this purple neon stage with all this smoke rising. And you're seeing a dude dressed as a doctor playing keyboards over here. You've got another dude dressed as a samurai with the rising sun headband coming on. And he's, you know, jamming on the guitars. You got these two hot chicks that are over here rubbing against each other playing the keyboards. And then all of a sudden you've got this little five foot two crazy black man who dressed like he just came from either uh, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean tryouts or his shift at little uh, at Long John Silver's. I don't know. All I know is I'm just like, what is this and how do I get more of this? Yeah, uh, yeah no, it was just phenomenal across across the board. I, I love I love that song and really I do love this album. I think it's a great album. Yeah. Now, I didn't even get to it until later in life. Uh, well, I didn't, you know. I pretty much grew up around classic rock and southern rock, so I didn't, I didn't get too much of, of this stuff uh, around uh, where I live. So, yeah, I got to it a little bit later in life. But, yeah, no, it is uh, it is a great album. Even if you get to it later in life, I mean, I, th- I think you can still appreciate it for what it is, hopefully at least. Yeah, and, and really the big thing, too, I mean, when you look at this album, you can clearly see how this, you know, as, as we were talking previously about stepping stones and, and, and blocks to future greatness. Um this album was definitely the stepping stone to what would be his 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 great epic album of Purple Rain. You can see all of the signs were pointing that way. Um, so as much as you know, uh, Prince's you know 1982 may not have been Prince's year. You know, Michael Jackson pretty much had that locked up. Yeah, you could definitely tell that he was right nipping on the heels, and he ended up you know overtaking a couple years later. This this was the album that started that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think albums like this too are important because it shows that, you know, at the time, and, you know, even on this show, people have mentioned, oh, you know, like on previous episodes, like they'll say, oh, you know, it seems more classic rock based. And I'm like, that's because at the time that was the music that was popular. Right. And as you shift to the 80s, you've got stuff like Thriller, you've got stuff like uh, 1999, where it's all of a sudden like, no you know, yeah, classic rock's still a thing, as we talked about before with, like, Iron Maiden and whatnot, but, you know, there is a shift towards this more pop sound, and I think for a lot of people at the time, they were like, what is this? But, you know, it, it's good to, to sort of get that broadening of uh, genres. Like, nowadays, 
you know, it's so broad in terms of what you can find. Like, you, you can listen to pretty much whatever you want now. Like, you can go find dubstep easily. You can go find whatever you want easily. But I imagine that, yeah, if you were in the 1980s and you were, like, like, like... Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and, you know, back in, back in our day, you know, all you had was MTV. You know, you didn't have MTV R&B, MTV2, MTV Quazillion, the MTV Ocho. You didn't have all these. All you had was that. So you would have Bruce Springsteen mixed with Prince, mixed with, you know, Iron Maiden, mixed with Tina Turner. I mean, it was just this huge smorgasbord of music that was going on at that time. And and I think the leanings, when you, when you look at that shift from, you know, classic rock to pop music, you know, there's a lot of truth to that old song, Video Killed the Radio Star, because a lot of those bands from the 80s, you know, your Bostons, your Totos, your, um, you know, those, you know, that kind of classic rock didn't hold up as much when the video age came because visually they weren't exciting. You know, they weren't Madonna, they weren't Prince, they weren't Michael Jackson. And so that's kind of when, you know, during, you know, those, those early mid eighties style definitely overcame substance. Right. Um, now this was uh this was the one that uh I I really was not familiar with. Um so I did have to really kind of go in and do some diligent research on this. Um the the thing that I I got from this album, I mean it's it's a great it's one of those albums that you could put in with great class, you know, like great, the great storytelling music, oh, particularly, particularly songs like Highway Patrolman. Um, you know, there's like two or three songs in there that, that, that are really character driven songs. Um, the thing that really, really caught me with this album and, and, you know, being a, a music, you know, a music guy myself, a musician and, you know, recording and all that, um, this album was just recorded with Bruce Springsteen, a guitar, and I think a couple songs of harmonica, um, and it was all just done on a four-track cassette record, you know, four-track recorder. Uh, so I mean, the, the the I mean, very low production, but really just just really good songwriting, good epic. I, well, I, I I use that term kind of loosely there, but you know, very very moving, you know, acoustic sets with just. Um, Springsteen, because apparently it was supposed to just be demos that were going to be done for whatever the next upcoming album was, but they turned out so good that everyone said, no, you just release it like this. Yeah, and it, it's amazing because like it does have this very homely feel to it, and I've always been a pretty big fan of Springsteen just because he's always kind of been that grassroots musician, and you know, it's kind of funny you know, the show obviously takes a look back in the history of pop culture. Bruce Springsteen never really changed his sound. You know, he has always kind of maintained his sound and his style. And I think it's kind of amazing that, you know, in a year where you have Thriller and 1999 and Real, uh, he just basically is like, you know what? 
this is how I like to do music, and I'm going to just stick with this style. And he's done that for, well, almost 30 or 40 years now. Right. And, you know, for some people, it's like, yeah, it's not my style of music, but I'm like, you have to at least appreciate that the guy, at least, he hasn't changed the sound, you know, like, even with bands like the Rolling Stones, you know, they're like, oh, you know, this is where the music's headed. Let's change our sound a bit. You know, obviously, they're still the Rolling Stones, but they're going to change their sound a bit to suit the popular uh, music of the time. But Bruce Springsteen never did that. Nebraska, you know, it's almost like a stubborn, like, foot down of this is how I'm doing music. If you like it, here it is. If not, sorry. It's unapologetic in that sense. Right, right. And I I hold a lot of respect for, you know, group, you know, uh, groups and artists like Springsteen who, who do that, you know, where you can hear maybe the first 10 seconds of a song and you know that's a Springsteen song. Um, you know, and I always kind of use the running joke of that with ACDC. All they have to do is hit one note and you know it's an ACDC song because they pretty much all sound the same. Um, but that's how, you know, acts like that really build and hold their fan base. You know, they, you know, that people may drop off, you know, say, oh, yeah, no, I, I like Springsteen just fine. Um, but the hardcore fans... <clears throat> Excuse me, but the hardcore fans um, have that appreciation that you know when when Springsteen releases an album, they know what they're getting. Um, and I think the only departure that Nebraska took from other albums, like say Thunder Road or Born in the USA, mm-hmm. was the fact that he didn't have the E Street Band backing him up. Yeah, you know this yeah. was just this was just him, you know, bare bones. So yeah. you knew that there was no, there was no, uh, there, there was no, uh, uh, cutting around it. You know, there was, there were, this was Springsteen at his most honest. Oh yeah, for sure. And that comes through in the music. And I think, you know, again, if you like his music, you like his music. If not, you don't. But again, I, I like that honesty that comes through in his music. So. Um, moving on to TV, it was kind of a sparse year for TV, TV, you know, obviously before I do the show, I'm always doing my research of like shows that came out and shows that ended. And I'm like, nothing really much in the way of TV this year, you know, like <laughs> a lot of ongoing shows, but, uh, the big debut, I guess in the year was, uh, the late night show with, uh, David Letterman, uh, which actually recently just ended. So shows how long that went on for, yeah. uh, I remember watching that show and it was just a riot because, you know, at the time you had Johnny Carson and all that. And he was, he was playing it straight, but David Letterman, I think he knew that he had to play things a little differently. Mm-hmm. And that shows, I mean, um, there was a comedian, Andy Kaufman that came on with the wrestler, Jerry, 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 the King Lawler. Yep. Yeah. And that was just, that was actually like, uh, one of the first bits on the show, which, had the two fighting on stage and you found out afterwards that it was staged, but it's just kind of hilarious that that was what David Letterman was doing with Nate late night where he's like, no, we're not just going to be, here's a guest. We'll tell some pretty PC jokes. He's just like, no, we're just going to do things a little differently. And it was great. Um, obviously the show's got a lot of moments worth mentioning, uh, you know, over the course of its, 30-ish year run, 30-plus year run. So, But what about you, TJ? What do you think of Late Night with David Letterman? Late Night with David Letterman was 
the reason why I looked forward to summer vacation from school. <laughs> this this was my this was my uh, it was my time that I could say I can stay up until. Oh, let's see. I got to think back here. Uh, uh, Carson, I think, ran from ten thirty to eleven thirty. So eleven thirty to twelve thirty. I knew if I, I knew I could hold out until twelve thirty and watch me, Dave Letterman. Uh, mm-hmm. The 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 show was was. I mean, you could just here again. You can dismiss it as a talk show if you wanted to, but it went way beyond that. Um, just in presentation, especially in those early years. You know, presentation, yeah. experimentation, and and just not, you know, it, it, there was a big, huge sense of pride in that it was not The Tonight Show. That no. it was, it was definitely um, um, skewed a little more to that, 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 that wacky, um, I wouldn't say surrealistic, but, you know, definitely off the beaten path humor. Um, you, you know, this, there was no other show out there where you were going to get stupid pet tricks. You know, there was no other show out there where they were going to feature a chimpanzee on roller skates with a video camera on its head, you know, <laughs> and calling it like the mobile monkey cam, you know. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, you know, as other people, you know, tried to imitate and emulate, you know, this guy was, you know, the originator, you know, of the whole of, of, of all that type of stuff. Um, and then, you know, and not to mention, um, you look at the, the rapport that, that he had with um, – with with Paul Schaefer and, yeah. and you know that how how else are you going to describe how kick ass a talk show is when you know Paul Schaefer and his band no this is Paul Schaefer and the world's most dangerous band you know <laughs> and, and 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 what's funny you know as as a little bit of an aside here too um a couple of the members on the on the band there um Will Lee had I, I I remembered him because he had uh, done some some of the bass tracks on Ace Fraley's from Kiss, uh, his first yeah. solo album, and uh, their uh, the drummer Anton Vick, he was the guy that was the int- that was the interim replacement in Kiss um, between uh, yeah. Peter Chris and Eric Carr, so you know he 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 had that kind of credential with me because I'm a diehard Kiss fan, or at least the early Kiss, not so much the nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, but so to me, you know, you've got two of these guys here that have those kind of street cred. Yeah, no, you've got me sold there. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, by and large, and who doesn't like Dave? At really, at the end of the day, I can't. Oh yeah, person. No, he he just he owned it. You know, like unlike Johnny Carson, who you know, obviously very successful in his own right, and obviously Jay Leno and whatnot. You always kind of felt like David was just kind of like a friend in a sense, which is always kind of a good thing. Uh, you, know, you want to be able to relate with them, and I think that that was something that they were able to pull off successfully. Right. So. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and that, that, that's really, I mean, a, good, the, 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 a great point that you make there. Johnny Carson had that, not, not that, not that he, had, he wasn't enjoyable and you couldn't relate to him, but he was one of those guys, that, he would be the kind of guy that if you saw him across the street, you would just eyeball him from across the street. You know, oh, that's Johnny Carson. Oh, the yeah. Letterman, he's the kind of guy that you'd see across the street. And you, and you maybe may or may not, but you felt you could walk over across the street, shake his hand, and maybe have a five-minute conversation with about literally nothing. <laughs> and he would be cool with it. And he would totally be down with it. But, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's exactly it there. Just, you know, the relatability. And I think that's probably why 
um, I think I think everybody loves Dave. Is just that down, you know that uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, uh, just just you know down to earth. Yeah. In a way. Grassroots. In 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 a wacky sort of way. <laughs> yeah, I I actually I, I saw some photos of him recently now that he's done with the show and he's just let himself go. But I'm like, he, he deserves it. You know, like sure. doing a show like that for close to 30 years, 30 plus years. Yeah. You can grow out a beard and just wear sweatpants every day. I mean, I think you deserve it. Oh yeah. Well, you know, and I think, I think we kind of got the hint that that was going to happen during the writer's strike of, of Oh seven, you know, when, when, when he was coming back, he had that full Santa Claus beard going on. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That was a hint of what he would do. <laughs> By the way, guys, give, give me enough time and I'll do this. Uh, let's move on to the final uh, TV show worth mentioning in, from 1982, and that's Cheers. Uh, before I dive into it, what do you think of Cheers, TJ? Uh, where everybody knows your name. Um, yes. You know, Cheers, it, that was one of those um, shows back in the day when, and, and this is when, you know, the, the must-see Thursdays, this is when all of that started. Um, yes. Cheers was part of that lineup with, <clears throat> and, and, and I'm trying to really focus, you know, remember back to this. So you had the Cosby Show, you had Family Ties, cheers and like maybe one other kind of floater thing that would get canceled midway and have mid-season mm-hmm. replacements. Um, cheers was one of those here again, funny, relatable shows. Anybody, whether, you know, it was adults at that time or as, you know, like we grew up the minute we hit 21, we find that one drinking hole that's ours. Yes. All of a sudden it's like, this is my cheers, you know, and everybody, you know, uh, you know, you come in and you've got, you've got, you're your norm. You've got a Cliff Clavin. You know, you've got character wise everybody that you can relate to. And that's why I think this movie, I think that's why that show, I think it lasted like 12 or 13 years, if I remember correctly. And I think the longevity there goes back to relatability. You know, everybody can put themselves in that situation. Yeah. And I think part of the success of the show was that every character had a great arc. And, you know, obviously uh, Sam Malone, played by Ted Danson, was the star. But, you know, Diane Chambers, played by Shelley Long, also had a great uh, character arc. And, you know, it, it's kind of funny, too, because I watched a bit of the show, and then I did a full marathon a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember in the beginning of season two, they introduced Kelsey Grammer's character, uh, Fraser Crit. Frazier yep. Crane. Frazier Crane, yeah. And it's funny because he's sitting in the background. I'm like, that's Frazier Crane. What, oh, like, when are they going to acknowledge this? And then he just stands up. He's like, hey, it's me, Frazier. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I, I saw you sitting there before they even introduced you. And obviously, that hit, that character got spun off into another successful show. And when you think about that, that show ran until 2004. So uh, when you think about it, uh, he played that character for like 21, 22 years. Right. Like, that's, in, that's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's, you know, you know, a steady paycheck is always a good thing. <laughs> I'm sure. Right. <laughs> now he's like, I'll, I'll play beast in an X-Men movie. You know, I'm, I'm fine with that. I don't need to play for your friend. That's a vacation for him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I mean, a lot of great actors in this show too. I mean, Rhea Perlman, John Ratzenberger, George Wendt, uh, Woody Harrelson, very young Woody Harrelson. 
Uh, Kirstie Alley, who we just mentioned uh, for Star Star Trek. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I I always think the show handled some very serious stuff as well, uh, pretty pretty well. I mean, Sam was uh, like a compulsive drinker uh, before the show begins, and then as the show kind of starts, you get him on the recovery where he doesn't drink. But you know, the show also too, he was uh, a sex addict in the show. Like he kind of, you know, he had a, a way with the women and. The show handled it well, where, you know, by the end of the show, it actually was more about him being a rec- uh, recovering sex addict, which I thought was great. So. Right, right. Yeah, so good show all around. And, yeah, as you say, you know, if you watch the show, when you reach uh, the legal drinking age in your country, you're going to start looking for your your version of Cheers. Exactly. <laughs> you'll probably be disappointed when you're like, how come nobody here mentions my name when I just walk into the bar? Yeah. <laughs> Come on, guys. It's not how it is on TV. Well, and and that and that's one of the the you know the the the, the believability on that is you know I'm too busy drinking to sit there and yell out Norm. I'm, I can't yell out your name when I got a beer in my mouth. Come on. <laughs> I think it was like a couple of years ago. I found some. Uh, what's it called? It's like uh, the Legion. I think is what they call it. It's you know cheap place to drink. I think that's probably the closest I've ever gotten to a Cheers type place where people are sort of like, "Hey, how's it going?" I'm like. Awesome. I'll keep coming back here. People know my name. This is great. <laughs> All right. So, TJ, what we do in the show is now that we've gone through 1982, we're going to give it a score. Uh, I, I use a very weird scale, but you're, you can use whatever scale you want to uh, rate this year. So what would you give 1982? Oh, boy. You know, let's go ahead and, 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 and I'll give you know, if I had to rank it based on, like, say, a 1 to 10 – I would give 82 probably an, a strong, ooh, you know, ba- and, and particularly based on what we're talking about, I would give it a strong nine. All right. Because, you know, like I said, my favorite movie of all time, Blade Runner, came out then, 1999, my, my, my favorite pop song, Number of the Beast, and, and the fact that, you know, I, I had started kindergarten, the magical, the magical years of beginning <laughs> public education. So yes. I'd, I'd, give, I'd give 82 a strong nine. Okay. Uh, I use the Uncle Joey scale, which always changes. So <laughs> it's never the same thing any time so, or every time. So I'll give uh, 1982, I'll give it 900 out of 1,000 Uncle Joey's. Nice. It's a very, very solid year. <laughs> uh, like you, I, I agree. I think a lot of stuff's really good. There's some stuff that I'm like not so hot on anymore or I don't revisit as much, such as The Dark Crystal. Right. I, I don't watch that as much or Tron, but... Overall, very good year. Now, uh, TJ, you know, once again, uh, people can find you guys over at uh, the Quad M Podcast. And uh, yes, uh, the website. If you guys, if uh, if anyone is interested, and and, and and please, by all means, you know, have a visit, stop for a while, um, head on over to uh, uh, Quad M, like Michael, like uh, uh, must see viewing. Uh, quadmproductions.com and you know feel free uh, you can you can uh, click in there and uh, check out the quad m show uh, we do also uh, produce a comic book that i am the, the writer and artist on enigma um, plenty of stuff for folks to check out so yeah quadmproductions.com and you guys are also on uh, itunes and stitcher as well right uh yeah itunes stitcher uh what do they got what's that that blueberry i think um and I think we're going to, we, at some point, try to get YouTube. But for right now, yeah, yeah. Um, iTunes and Stitcher, the, the go-tos as far as, you know, as far as the online subscriptions and stuff. 
and again, guys, I've listened to the Quad M show, and it's if you listen to Three Angry Nerds, it's very, you know, there's a lot of comparisons there. There's a lot of similar topics being covered. So if you guys like Three Angry Nerds, you're definitely going to like the Quad M show as well. So go check it out. All right, that's it for 1982. Join us, guys, next week while we go and examine 1983. Bye for now.